Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you once again for your Word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us to just to spend time with you and to fellowship with you. Thank you for allowing us to be in your family through faith in Christ. And Lord, I do want to lift up the the ladies as they go to the retreat. We pray for safe travels to and from. We pray that you keep them safe on the grounds. We pray, Lord, that you'll use each and every one of them, however you will, that you'll equip them and be glorified in and through them, Father. We We pray, Father, over the teachers who will be there and facilitators that you'll empower them and use them for your glory. And we pray, Father, that they will be encouraged, that they'll come back better than ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, so we are in Mark chapter 16. Mark 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And just to catch everybody up up on uh, what's going to come from the study in verse 1, just want to remind everybody that in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66, we find that the chief priests and the Pharisees are gathered and they go to Pilate on the Sabbath day, on the day of rest. And there you can see that they remembered that Jesus said he would rise on the third day. And so these religious leaders, these Jewish religious leaders, they, they appealed to Pilate and asked him to secure the tomb to prevent his disciples from stealing his body. Because the Jewish religious leaders feared that the people would be convinced that Jesus rose from the dead if that were to happen. And so they remembered something that you'll see that the disciples did not remember, that that Jesus said that he will be raised or resurrected on the third day. And so they went to Pilate. And Pilate told them to take guards, take some soldiers. Go ahead, you can have them and, and make the tomb secure, the tomb where Jesus' body was at that point. Make it secure. And so they had their Roman soldiers and they're posted at the tomb. And not only that, but the scriptures tell us that the stone was sealed. The stone that was rolled over the mouth of the cave or the tomb. It was sealed. And they sealed the stone with the cord that was stretched across the stone. And it had a lump of stamped clay fastening the cord on either end. And so if anybody were to tamper with the stone that covered the entrance of the tomb, there'll be no way that someone couldn't find out because the seal will be broken. And so that has taken place thus far. And so That brings us to verse 1 in Mark 16. And it says, Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they may come and anoint him, so that they can come and anoint the body of Jesus, which they thought was still dead at this point. Now, the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, strictly speaking, was from sunset Friday until sunset Saturday. And so it was over at the start of Saturday evening, technically. And so based on verse 1 of Mark 16, maybe the women bought more spices after the Sabbath ended on Saturday night in order to add to what they had prepared earlier. Now, the scriptures tell us that it was still dark when Mary Magdalene 
Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, Salome, who we believe to perhaps be the mother of James and John the Apostles, and also the wife of Zebedee. There was also a woman by the name of Joanna. There were other women there. And so all these women started out for the tomb while it was still dark, the scriptures tell us. And then they would arrive at early dawn, as we'll see in our next verse in verse 2. Because in verse 2 of Mark 16, it says, Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, which would make it Sunday, all of these women came to the tomb when the sun had risen or at sunrise. And these women said amongst themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But now when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it. That is, the stone was very large. Now, this was a large stone, obviously, from the text. And this large stone was was set in an inclined channel. So there was a groove there and it was on an incline. And in order to move this stone or to remove this stone from the opening of the tomb, several men would need to move it. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, we learn who rolled the stone away from the opening of the tomb. Because remember, as the ladies are thinking, who's going to remove this stone for us? They saw that it was already moved. And so we learn who removed it. The scriptures tell us again in Matthew 28, 2, that an angel had descended from heaven and rolled away the stone. And that stone, that removal of the stone caused an earthquakes. And the guards who were there, remember there were guards there, the, the Roman soldiers there that, that Pilate had released to the relig- religious leaders. Those guards, they shook for fear of the angel. And the scriptures say that these men fainted. Now, just like these women who are on their way to do something, to do something loving and sweet for the Lord. Remember at this time, they they thought his, his body was still there. They saw him on that cross. They saw him die. They, they saw where he was laid, where the tomb was. And so they were expecting to do something sweet and loving for him, something honorable for him. Remember, as they were on their way to do something for the Lord, they were wondering, how can this large stone be removed? They knew that that would be an obstacle for them to do what they wanted to do in anointing the body of Christ. And I would suggest that many of us are in that same position. Maybe we know that the Lord wants us to do something or maybe it's on our heart to do something sweet and loving and honorable for the Lord. Maybe there's some type of pressing issue that we need to address. And as we're moving towards accomplishing that pressing issue or whatever it is the Lord has put on our hearts or whatever it is our hearts are stirred to do that's so loving to the Lord. On our way there, maybe we too are agonizing about the obstacle that's in our way. Maybe we're worried about how are we going to get past this large stone and accomplish what we need to accomplish for the Lord. For some people, we have this ministry that the Lord has placed on our hearts. Maybe the Lord placed on your heart to be a missionary and maybe the finances or an obstacle or a large stone for you. Or maybe there's some of you called into ministering to the children or the children's ministry and you're wondering well I have all these children at home how am I gonna remove this large stone of waking everybody up in time so that I can get to church in time and come and learn and then to make sure that I can serve in the children's ministry and so maybe that's an obstacle for some of you or maybe for some of you you want to come and worship the Lord Maybe during the midweek service or Sunday morning, or maybe you want to go to a home fellowship or even attend prayer service, but maybe the stone that is in your way, that's an obstacle for you is your work schedule. And so many times what we find out when 
we're on our way to doing something sweet and loving for the Lord. And there's an obstacle and we're worried about it. Many times we find out that the Lord has already taken care of it. Just like we saw this angel of the Lord who took care of that stone that was in their way. In verse 5, it says, in entering the tomb, these women, they saw a young man who was clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And and the women were alarmed. They didn't expect to see this young man there. And just based on the context and the other gospel accounts, you know, this young man was an angel. It was an angel in human form. In Luke 24, verse 4 It tells us that there were two angels who were there in the form of men and they stood by the women and they were wearing these shining garments, these bright garments. But in our study tonight in Mark chapter 16, we see that Mark focused on the more prominent young man or angel. Or maybe at this time, there was only one angel who was visible. And then at a certain point, If you look at the other gospel accounts, maybe there were two visible. So maybe it just fluctuated at that point. Maybe they saw one or two at a time here and there. Or maybe, like I said earlier, maybe just Mark just focus on the more prominent one. But when we take all these uh, gospel accounts together, it, it appears that one of the angels at least has started outside of the tomb. And then at some point, he moved inside of the tomb and and spoke to the women. But he said to them in verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And I like what it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 5. It says, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then he proceeds to tell them in Mark 16, 6, he's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And so these women didn't expect to hear this news. They expected to see a dead body, the dead body of our Lord. That's what they expected to see. They didn't expect to see this. They didn't expect to hear what this angel was telling them, that he is risen, that he's not here. See, they came to anoint his dead body and Definitely, they were in shock. They were alarmed. They were surprised. But the angel would suggest that you're looking for the living in the wrong place. You're looking for the living Christ, the living Messiah in the wrong place. And I would suggest that even today in the times in which we're living, there are still some people who are looking for Jesus in the wrong place. See, some people are looking in other so-called holy books for the true Jesus, and Jesus is not there. They're, they're looking into dead cults and dead religions for the Jesus of the Bible, and the Jesus that we serve isn't there. They're looking for Jesus in the culture, the way the culture devo- defines Jesus. They're looking for Jesus who is that Jesus in the political circles, the way politicians want Jesus to be. And if you really search Jesus, the true Jesus is not there. You see, the true Jesus is living. If you're going to find out who the true Jesus is, you have to go to the Bible, the the word of God, the inspired word of God. Because you're not going to find the real Christ in anything else. In verses 7 and 8, it says, but go tell his disciples. And again, this is the angel who's still speaking. He says, and Peter, so tell his disciples and Peter that he, that is Jesus, is going before you into Galilee, into the northern area of Israel. Because remember, they're in Jerusalem at this point. And he says, there you will see him. You'll see him in Galilee as he said to you. And so they went out quickly and they fled from the tomb. For they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for these women were afraid. Now notice how Peter, the apostle Peter was singled out because Jesus, remember, said, go tell the disciples, go tell the followers of Jesus and go tell Peter this information. 
that he's going to meet you, go ahead of you and meet you in Galilee, as he said to you. But why was Peter singled out? Why was he singled out? He was singled out because he had failed miserably. Remember when, when he denied Christ three times? He denied him three times before the rooster crowed twice. And Peter was disappointed in himself because he was sure that he wouldn't be the one to deny Jesus, even though Jesus told the disciples that all are going to be made to stumble because of him on that Thursday night, on the night that he would be betrayed. But Peter didn't believe that he would be the one. He didn't think that he would be the one to deny Christ. He did. He was disappointed. He wept bitterly, the scriptures tell us. So I believe that's why Jesus singled him out, but not to condemn him. But what we see here is a hint of Peter's coming restoration. And if you want to see the full story of Peter's restoration, you can look in John chapter 21. And so this loving Jesus, this compassionate and merciful Jesus, although he knew one of his disciples who swore And who was adamant that he would never turn his back on him. He would never deny him. Never disown him. Jesus never turned his back on him. Even though Peter at one time turned his back on Jesus. But Jesus, our compassionate Savior, was willing to welcome him back into the fold. And I wonder tonight if there's somebody who has felt that they disappointed the Lord lately. Maybe you felt that you were strong, but really you found out how weak you were and you stumbled and you feel like you're a big or a huge disappointment and that Jesus doesn't want anything else to do with you. Oh, you see Jesus here just from the example we see about Peter and how Peter was singled out. Hinting of his coming restoration. We see this same Jesus is also willing and ready to welcome you too back into the fold. It's not that you ever lost your relationship, but the fellowship may be lost. And so there's a call to repentance for for some of us who have walked out of the path that God wants us to walk in. Maybe we did sin and thought we were too strong. Let our guard down and we fail. But our loving Savior is ready to restore you and welcome you back into that fold of fellowship. Now, on this night of betrayal, remember that Jesus told the disciples not just that bad news that they will be made to stumble because of him. But remember, he also told them that he was going to be raised from the dead. And that also he was going to go ahead of them to Galilee to meet them there after he was raised on that third day. And this is the message this angel wanted the ladies to take back to the disciples to remind them of Jesus's word, of what he has said to them. And Jesus giving them that word before he was crucified is a God who will keep his word. He will never disappoint. He's not like man that he should lie. And I like how it's stated in in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. And we'll read it out of the New Living Translation. Speaking of God being a God of his word, it says that God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. And these two things are unchangeable, his promise and his oath. They're unchangeable because of what? Because it is impossible for God to lie. So people may question, is there anything that is impossible for God? And here you see one thing that is impossible for God to do. It's impossible for him to lie. And why is it impossible for God to lie? Why is, it, why is it impossible for Jesus to lie? It's impossible because it is against his nature. You see, lying comes from the enemy. Lying comes from the enemy. He is the father of lies, not God, not Jesus. And to continue in that verse, it says, Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge, for safety, 
can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. And so we see that Jesus kept in line with that verse. It was impossible for him to lie. If he told them that he was going to be raised again, it was going to happen, and it did happen. If he told them that he was going to meet them in Galilee, then he was going to do it, and he kept his word. Now, the women, after receiving the message that they were to carry, you can see from these scriptures here that that they had some mixed emotions. They had mixed emotions because they were afraid. They were amazed. Another scripture says that they had great joy and that other scripture being Matthew 28, verse 8. Now, at that point, that point that we come to in verse 8, when you come to the following verses, verses 9 through 20, there's some controversy there. Controversy there. And so we're going to go over why these verses are controversial in verses 9 through 20. And you may have picked it up depending on what Bible version you have. Because depending on what Bible version you have, you may see a footnote regarding Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20. Now, some of the, your versions may have the shorter ending of Mark. Some may have the longer ending of Mark. And some Bible versions may include both. And some versions may include verses 9 through 20 in brackets. And so you may be wondering or asking at this point, what are those brackets about? How come Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 are in brackets? Or how come the version that I'm reading has this note or that note? Or how come the version that I'm reading has this footnote when it comes to these verses? You see, what they're showing is when they put brackets around those verses or put those notes there, you know, some... Some Bible scholars have that belief that these verses may not belong in the text, that they don't belong in Mark chapter 16. That's what some Bible scholars believe. And there are a couple of reasons of why they believe that way. And one reason they don't believe that verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16 belongs there or was a part of the original text, and this is some Bible scholars, why they believe that, is because the earliest Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, namely the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, don't have verses 9 through 20. And so some Bible scholars who really would revere those two older manuscripts say that 9 through 20 don't belong in Mark chapter 16. But another reason why some scholars don't believe it belongs there is that they claim that about one-third of the vocabulary is different from the rest of the Gospel of Mark. And, and they say there's an awkward grammatical transition between verses 8 and 9. But I also want to present you with two arguments that, that show that it is correct to include Mark chapter 16 verses 9 and 20 or 9 through 20 in our Bibles. And one reason is that many early Christian writers like Irenaeus refer to this passage, the passage in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 in their writings. And so that shows that early Christians knew about this passage in the gospel of Mark and they accepted it as genuine or real. Another reason that that's for including Mark verses um, 9 through 20 in our Bibles is that the overwhelming majority of ancient manuscripts included. And so the majority of the text, the Greek text included. But some say, well, because the older ones don't, those two older ones that I mentioned note that it doesn't belong there. But I want to share a quote with you from this, this book. It's called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. It is by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe. And it says here in explaining uh, Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, and it says whether or not this piece of text belongs in the original, the truth it contains certainly accords with it. And, so, and so it says, so the bottom line is that it does not make any difference. It's, it does, 
or since if it does belong here, there is nothing in it that is contrary to the rest of Scripture. There's nothing in it, in other words, that contradicts sound biblical doctrine or any other theology in the Bible, in other words. And they go on to say that if it does not belong, there is no truth missing in the Bible since everything taught here is found elsewhere in the scriptures. And so if people want to remove it, then guess what? We still have this information in other texts, in other gospel accounts. For example, if you continue to read in in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, you'll see it talking about the gift of tongues. It talks about tongues. Well, guess what? That's also included in the Bible in Acts chapter 2. It talks about water baptism. So if they want to remove it from here, then you can find water baptism in Acts 2.38, for example. And then it says, and when it comes to God's first century supernatural protection of his messengers who were unknowingly bitten by a poisonous snake, Let's say that they want to take that out. Guess what? You can still find it in Acts 28 verses 3 through 5. And so Geisler and Howe concludes. So in the final analysis, it is simply a debate about whether this particular text belongs in the Bible, not over whether any truth is missing. But I like what Pastor Chuck Smith states. Pastor Chuck, he passed away as a senior, senior pastor of the Calvary chapels. This is what he states. He says that we believe that this whole chapter was in the original and is inspired by God. He says that if you scratch the last half of Mark 16, the book doesn't make any sense, and it really doesn't. And it says the fullness of the resurrection doesn't even take place. That is, if you were to end it at Mark 16, verse 8. And so, we praise God for those scholarly men, and we praise God for Chuck, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith. But also, we can see it for ourselves. And so, we continue in verse 9, and I had to throw that out there to you because I'd rather share that with you than for somebody who's an atheist to bring that up to you, and then they put, put a little twist in there to try to stomp out your faith. But there's nothing to lose your faith about. We have the word of God in front of us. The message comes through clearly 100%. And so when it comes to apologetics, this is what we do. We want to we study. We want to be able to have an answer for every man who asks a reason for the hope that is in us. And if somebody asks us a question about Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, we're able to give them an answer. So we're not thrown off. And that maybe we can, we can share the information we know to remove that stumbling block from people. And really, that's what apologetics, Christian apologetics is about. It's about removing the roadblocks that some people may have so that they can see Christ more clearly. And so we want to be equipped and be able to do that. And so that's why we go over these things, even these academic things as we're studying the scriptures. In verse 9, it says, now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Seven demons. These are fallen angels. And we don't know how many there are. All we know is that Satan persuaded one third of God's angels to go with him. And so even still, God's angels outnumber all of the demons that are on this earth. And so she had seven demons in her. Now, from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, we learn that after seeing the stone have been rolled away from the tomb, we learn that Mary Magdalene ran and told Peter and John. And then coming back to the tomb with her, Peter and John found the tomb empty and the stone rolled away as Mary Magdalene told them. Again, you'll find this in John 20, verses 1 through 10. Then after Peter and John saw that what Mary Magdalene had said was true, that this tomb was empty, it said they returned to their homes. But the scriptures tell us in John 20 that Mary Magdalene stayed outside by the tomb and she was weeping. She didn't know where they had taken the Lord's body. And so she looked into the tomb and it says that she saw the two angels who spoke with her. And it was at that time that Jesus 
appear to her. And if you keep reading in John chapter 20 and you look at verses 11 through 18, you'll find more information about Mary Magdalene's encounter with the resurrected Jesus, the resurrected Christ. In fact, she she didn't even know who he was when she first saw him. She thought that he was the gardener. Now look at this. This is a woman who had seven demons in her at one point that Jesus had cast out. But yet and still, Jesus revealed himself to her after he was resurrected. And so an application we can take from this as we see that Jesus appeared to someone who has seven demons in them at one point. An application we can take for us for life is that it doesn't matter what our past is. Jesus is willing to make an appearance to us, or in other words, to reveal himself to us, to reveal to us that he is Lord, that he is Savior, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's only through him that you can have a relationship with the Father. See, Jesus won't discriminate when it comes to our past, when it comes to the way we look, as far as who he's going to reveal himself to. He, he died for every single person. Every single human, we're all made in the image of God, although it's marred, but he came to die in our place and took the penalty for our sins, no matter what your past is. So you can't sit there and no one can sit there and say, well, I've been too bad. My my past is too messed up for him to love me, for him to show himself real to me, for him to save me, for him to take me to heaven with him. And we see that's not true just from the fact, this fact here of his interaction with Mary Magdalene. Now, Matthew 28, verses 9 through 10 also tell us that Jesus met the other women, too, while they were on their way to tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. Now, remember, there were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb where Jesus's body was. Remember, they had even sealed the stone with the cord stretched across it with that lump of stamped clay fastening each end of that cord. Remember that. And so while, just to get on back on these soldiers, so while all of this is going on here with the resurrection and the appearances of the resurrected Christ behind the scenes, Some of these soldiers had told the chief priests what happened. You know, the chief priests got together with the elders and they decided to give money to the soldiers to tell people that the disciples stole his body. And the religious leaders told these soldiers that, hey, you know, this if the governor questions you, I got your back. I have your back in this matter. Controversy. Now, she went and told those who had been with him, speaking of Mary Magdalene, as we continue in verse 10, and it says, as they mourned and wept. So the disciples were weeping. They were mourning at this time. Luke chapter 24, verse 10 tells us that Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women also told the apostles about these things, along with Mary Magdalene. But you go back to Mark 16, verse 11, it says that when they heard that Jesus was alive and had been seen by her, speaking of the apostles who were gathered, they did not believe. And after that, in verse 12, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Now, these two disciples who went into the country, if you want to look in Luke 24 verse beginning at verse 13 you'll find out more information about these two travelers because these two followers of Christ they were going to a village called Emmaus and it says that Jesus appeared in another form to them what does that mean that Jesus became a spirit now no that's not what it means because remember when he appeared to Mary Magdalene it appeared that he was a gardener She thought he was a gardener. Well, to these two disciples who were on their way to the village in Emmaus, he appeared in the form of a fellow traveler. 
And Jesus, on the way to Emmaus, as he walked with these two disciples, he gave them a Bible lesson about all that is in the Old Testament scriptures about himself. And the scriptures tell us in Luke 24 that they didn't even know it was Jesus until he sat at the table with them and he blessed the bread. And then their eyes became open. And then back in Mark 16, 13, it says, and they, speaking of these two travelers, these two disciples, it says, and they went and they told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. The apostles didn't believe these guys either. And then later on in the evening, that is on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the eleven. As they sat or as they were reclining at the table. And so it says that he appeared to the 11, but really it's talking about the group of disciples who were there. Because if you read the other gospel accounts, Thomas wasn't there at this point. So he was missing. So really it was 10. So the 11 just refers to the group of apostles who were alive. And it says that Jesus rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now get this. For some people who say that this story is fake. That it's not real. That it's unbelievable. Now get this. If it were. I want you to consider the culture at that time. The Jewish culture at that time. In the first century. Because during that time. A woman's testimony was considered almost worthless. So now if this story were fake, it is highly unlikely that the gospel writers would have included the fact that the first witnesses to the empty tomb were women. And so here we have an indirect hint of the truthfulness of this gospel account. We also have a hint of the validity of the gospel account by even Embarrassing details about the apostles because if you really want somebody to believe what you're saying and to believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're not going to paint yourself in an embarrassing light. But the gospel writers that God used, they did that. Peter, remember, Peter was the source Mark used, right, to write this gospel account. He allowed that information of him denying Christ to be in here. And so the fact that there's some embarrassing details about the apostle, the fact that it records the fact that there were women who were the first witnesses, it shows that this is truthful. What we're seeing is true. This is not something that's made up. It's not fairy tale. And indirectly, it shows the validity of this resurrection story. But as the women gave witness and as those two disciples on the road to Emmaus gave witness The apostles did not readily receive their testimonies. They didn't receive it. And so Jesus rebuked them for the stubbornness of their hearts. See, this unbelief caused these apostles to be caught up in fear. They were caught up in their disappointment. Their unbelief caused them to be caught up in their emotions. And instead, they should have been rejoicing. And I would suggest that even for us, when, when we are in the state of unbelief, when we're not taking God at his word, when we're not trusting the character of God, of who he is and what he is to us, when we're not taking God at his promises, and we're in a state of unbelief, we too could be missing out on rejoicing because we should be rejoicing for the fact that God is so good to us. In spite of all the bad that we think is happening in our lives and around us, God is still good to us. And so we too should be rejoicing. These apostles should have been rejoicing at the fact that Jesus is alive. Now for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and other believers. And there is a general order to Jesus's resurrection appearances so the time between his resurrection and ascension or him going back to heaven here you would see the general order and so he first appeared to mary magdalene at the empty tomb and then he appeared to the other women then he appeared to peter 
The scriptures also tell us that he appeared then to the two followers who were on their way to the village in Emmaus. And then number five, it says he appeared to 10 of his disciples in Jerusalem. Because remember, Thomas was absent the first time. But then he appeared to the 11 disciples in Jerusalem. Now Thomas was present. And I believe if my memory serves me correctly, this was eight days later. But now it tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples at Lake Galilee, which we didn't study tonight, but you can see that in John chapter 21. And then he appeared to his disciples at his ascension near Jerusalem. Now, the apostle Paul also mentioned some other appearances of Jesus between his resurrection and ascension, and it's not recorded by the gospel writers. However, it is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7, if you want to write that down. And so because it tells us that he appeared to 500 believers. And it also tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that Jesus also appeared to James, to his brother James. And so you have this general order of Jesus's resurrection appearances between the time of his resurrection and ascension. And so we talk so much about the fact that Jesus is alive. We spend so much time talking about his resurrection because his resurrection is important. The resurrection of Jesus is number one proof that Jesus is who he says he is. The fact that he came alive, that he was raised from the dead, it tells us that whatever he said about himself is true. It shows us that everything he taught about all matters is true. So when Jesus talks about heaven, when he talks about hell, when he talks about him being the way, the truth, and the life, when he gives prophecy, the resurrection is a stamp of approval. It's proof that who he is and what he says is true. And the resurrection is so important that if there was no resurrection, Christianity would be pointless. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. See, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if he was never resurrected, then guess what? We're still in our sins. That means the payment for our sins were not accepted. That means that he was not an acceptable and a perfect sacrifice. You see, if he wasn't resurrected, then we're still going to face that penalty of, of our sin, of being eternally separated from God. And if Jesus is not resurrected, there is no hope for anyone. Read 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. It says, and if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, people need to feel sorry for us. If the only hope that we have is in this life, but we do have hope. And when I talk about hope, I'm talking about that joyful expectation of coming good. And that's because of the fact that Jesus lived. And because Jesus lives, because he was resurrected, the truth remains that so will we. We too will be resurrected. And so we see the importance of the resurrection and so we celebrate the resurrection. But Darrell, when you, when you talk about the resurrection and the fact that because Jesus lived, we will live too. Darrell, you're, you're only focusing on the future when we die or when we're raptured. Well, guess what? This lesson also applies to our lives practically before eternity. The fact that he resurrected is very important to us and have some application to our lives right now, in other words. Because Jesus lives, because he was resurrected, and because we repented and put our faith in this Jesus, then guess what? That, that same person, so to speak, speaking of us, that went in the tomb is no longer. 
You see, some people are still looking for that same Darrell that went into the tomb. Some people are still looking for that same you who was bloodied, who was beaten up by sin, who was left for dead because of sin. Some people are looking for that same you, that old uncrucified old man dominated by the sin nature. Some people are still looking for that old you in that tomb. But guess what? Just like Jesus is no longer there, we are no longer there. That's not us anymore. But people are still looking for us who's there. And that's what Jesus' resurrection means to us as we apply it to our lives practically right now. You see, just like the angel asked the women, why are you looking for the living among the dead? We can ask people the same thing, that old group that we used to hang with who say, hey, I remember we used to do this and that together. I remember we used to game bang together. I remember we used to do drugs together. I remember we used to chase women together. Let's do that again. That was so much fun. And we can bring that same question that the angel posed to the woman to them. We can ask them because we're born again. Why do you seek the living among the dead because right now I am alive in Christ. I am not there anymore. You see that resurrected life of Christ is applicable to us on this side of eternity. You see before the tomb, before the tomb, I was only a son of Adam, but now we are a child of God. We're believers. The people have seen us bloodied and beaten in sin, but that is not us any longer as the worship team takes the stage. And because Jesus lives, the Holy Spirit is sent back to indwell us permanently. The Holy Spirit doesn't move in and out of the believer. We are under the new covenant, which is put into effect by the shedding of Jesus's blood. And so under this new covenant, And because of the fact that Jesus rose and he ascended, he went back to the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And so as believers, we can say as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that that same power that rose Jesus from the grave and seated him in heavenly places is that same power that is at work in us. It's the same power that is at work for us. And toward us. All because Jesus lives. All because he was resurrected. And and just knowing that truth. That that same power that rose him from the grave. That same power that seated him in heavenly places. Just knowing that should encourage us in our spiritual walk. It should encourage us in our ministry. It should encourage us in our witnessing. It should encourage us in our problems. It should encourage us in our spiritual warfare because we have the power of God working in us, through us, and for us, and toward us. That same power that resurrected our Lord. But before I close, and you may know this song, and I'm not going to sing it, so don't worry. I'm not going to sing this song. But before I leave, I just want to share with you that there are some lyrics from a certain song that sums up, sums up this message beautifully. And you may know the song. The title of the song is Because He Lives. You see, the first verse of that song says, God sent his son, and they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And the chorus says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. So maybe right now, tonight, as you sit in this place or as you're viewing online, maybe right now you don't feel like living. Maybe right now you don't feel like going on. Maybe right now you feel like quitting whatever you know God has told you to do. Maybe right now you're thinking that this Christian life is hard and I'm getting beat up from left to right and there's just 
something in me that just want to quit, that just want to give up. Well, the fact that our Savior lives, the fact that Jesus lives, should be reason enough to make us want to go on. It should make us believe that, that life, yes, it is worth the living, all because our Savior lives. That yes, we can rejoice because our Savior lives. That yes, I can continue to work on my marriage. That yes, I can continue to do what God called me to do because I serve a true and the living Savior. Oh, right now, it's bleak right now and times are tough right now. And the political climate in this country and across the world is just going crazy right now. But I don't want to give up. I don't need to give up. And I don't have to give up all because... Our Savior lives. Amen. So at this time, we're going to go into the communion service and we're going to celebrate the fact that he died. Yes, we know he rose, but the communion part of the service reminds us of, of his death. His body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us, that blood that put the New Testament into effect. That blood that washes away all of our sins. And as we partake of communion, we do it prayerfully. We do it respectfully. We want to honor him. We, as we partake of it, we remember his death. We don't want to do it in a dishonorable way. We want to do it with the heart of gratitude. And so... As it is also a time of reflection, I just want to ask all of you to join me in praying that the Lord will show us if there's any sin in our lives that we need to repent of, that we need to confess. And it says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So at this time, as, as we get ready for the communion part of the service, I just ask you to spend that time with the Lord. And as the communion part of the service is different from Sundays, if you're new or visiting, I just want to let you know that you're not going to have any ushers to direct traffic. But as you feel moved, you can come to the front or back. You can take the elements and go back to your seat. Just spend time with you and the Lord or you and your spouse in the Lord and partake you know, on your own. And there's two cups if you're new or visiting. And so they're stacked. So you want to take both. So I'll lead us in prayer. Then after the prayer, this will be the last time you hear from me tonight, unless you want to come up for prayer. But Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for the fact that Jesus died for our sins. He died in our place. And Father, we pray that you forgive us if there's any sin in our lives. We haven't confessed to you. And we thank you for forgiving us. We thank you that you're going to cleanse us. We pray that you'll be glorified during this time of communion. We praise you, Lord. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, everyone on this campus, Lord, as they go back home, that you give them traveling grace, that you bless them, that you use them in a mighty way this week. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.